Um, I'll be reading from uh, 2 Corinthians. We're going to be reading two parts of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 15 and 9, 6 to 15. Um, as you know, we are starting our uh, series in giving. <clears throat> and uh, this, these readings we'll be looking at more in detail over the next uh, two weeks. So we won't be looking at it in too much detail today, but it'll frame everything that we will be looking at and will be a helpful start for us as we start this series together. So let's read 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 15, and then 9, 6 to 15, page 967. <clears throat> we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace." But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much has nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And 9, 6 to 15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. 
Well, on Sunday mornings, this term, our main focus will be John's Gospel, chapters 5 to 10. And we'll start that on 16th of September, when the whole church family is back together at the start of the student term. For the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the topic of money and uh, giving. You'll see on the service sheet that, or the large service sheet, uh, the A4 service sheet, with, uh, I think, two mistakes on it, just to keep you vigilant, be a prize afterwards. And uh, you'll see on that uh, sheet, and we're on the back side of it, the outline for talk one, and I think it's helpful to give you a much fuller outline than normal because you're going to be uh, looking at this in the small groups, studying uh, off the back of this talk. What I thought would be helpful as we kick off on the series is to uh, have some introductory comments. Now, I do have a tendency as a preacher to waggle on the tee. It's not a good idea. But I think on this subject, it is helpful for us to do so. For one reason, and there are many others, I've been at this for 10 years and haven't spoken on the subject, and I suspect many of us have not listened to a series on the subject or studied it in our small groups. So I think a bit of waggling on the tea today is in order. Let me run through these points, and I try to think carefully about what's the right way into this. They're not sort of random. Firstly, that money is a key area of Christian discipleship. And the point, I think, that we do need to kind of corporately acknowledge up front is that it does matter as Christians how we think about money. And it does matter as Christians what we do with the money we have. Indeed, our understanding of money, our attitude to money, our use of money, is a key litmus test of our grasp of the gospel. Why do I say that? For one reason, because Jesus said more about money than any other single topic in the New Testament. That's surprising, isn't it? more than morality, more than salvation even. And so it is a key discipleship issue in his opinion. But we don't talk about money. You'll see that on the sheet. Why not? Because we're British. We just don't do it, do we? And you're kind of emanating to me tentative silence saying, well, why are you doing it? Because we don't do it, do we? It's a private matter, and uh, we can quote Scripture to justify that. So, for example, Jesus said, Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. You will have no reward. Do not let your left hand see what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And so your father knows what is done in secret and will reward you. What Jesus is talking about is secrecy with respect 
to what we give. That's obvious, I think. The amount we give to guard our hearts, gauge our true motivations, secrecy about how much we give, but not silence on the subject of money. After all, he spoke enough about it. But I wonder if there is another reason why, as Christians, we don't talk about money, because it is one of the hardest areas in the Christian life to face up to, let alone get get right. It runs to so many areas or parts of our lives, our consciousness. It is not simple. It is complex. It is all-consuming. It is super-sensitive and risky. So let's not talk about money. I've been minister of Chalmers for nearly 10 years, and as I said, I've never taught in a systematic and focused way what the Bible says about money. I've never taught in a systematic and focused way what Jesus taught in a systematic and focused way on more than anything else. That's not great, and I'm not proud of that or avoiding the subject. Now, here's my prediction. In one month's time, we'll be saying, you'll be saying to me at the door, apart from comments on the weather, which will remain at church doors until the new creation dawns, you're going to say to me, you know, it's been really good to talk about money. I would be very, very surprised if that's not the reaction of us all. Lots of you are telling me how much you're benefiting from Bynum's book, Money Counts. We've had the benefit as a ministry team getting our heads around this over the past few weeks. And we as a group have really benefited from talking about money and giving. But beyond all these reasons, and they are good human reasons, the main reason we'll conclude it's been really good to talk about money and giving is because we're going to be listening to what God says about it and God's Word, God's teaching. Remember, well, we've been in the Psalms. The Psalms not only teach us stuff, they teach us where we find the stuff that transforms us. I find delight in your commands. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, of course, there are risks in addressing a subject like money and giving. But my sense as minister of the kind of heartbeat of Chalmers is that we want to get this area of our discipleship right. We want to do the right thing. We want to know what God's Word says. Why now, though, in our church life? There is an obvious reason. When we made the decision to plant a church back in January, that was subject to two things, adequate resources being committed in terms of people and adequate resources being committed in terms of money. We're now six months on, and a strong launch team has come together, which is encouraging. And so what remains, logically, is to discern if we have the adequate resources materially to plant the church and to sustain the planting church chambers. That is an important question we need to know the answer to. God encourages us to give diligent thought to that, to plan, and so on and so forth, as we have done. And it's no secret that it will require a significant increase in our regular monthly giving. I mean, that's no secret, is it? We're going to plant a church, and that requires a decrease. 
It doesn't. It requires an increase. Not cheap to plant another church. Which will set out at the vision evening on the 10th. An anticipation of that, about six months ago, we thought it would be helpful to look at what the Bible says about money and giving. So there's an obvious reason. You may be wondering why on the little sheet there it says, I think we got it wrong. Now you might think I'm just saying that, but I really do think we've got it wrong. It's a personal opinion that we've got it wrong, but I sense that others may share that. I do regret having the vision evening the day after the series finishes. Well, obviously we do when you think about it. It's in the term card now. It wasn't thought through. It wasn't strategic. It wasn't manipulative. It wasn't any of these things. But it does give the wrong message that we gear up to the night when up on the screen at 20 to 9 flashes up the figure. That's the wrong message. And I hold my hands up and say, in all honesty, that is not ideal. And I ask you to... uh, see that the subject we are looking at is far bigger than that. I mean, I would never have thought, if pinned to the wall, that we'll not be able in Chalmers with a church of our size to plant a church. I mean, that's not, not going to happen. But it's a much bigger issue. Now, to do take that as a sincere comment from me, and you know me well enough to know that it is, it's not well-timed. Now, whether the timing is right or wrong, though, and there is a bit of me that thinks there will never be a right time to address a subject like this, it is an important matter for us to address because it is a key discipleship issue. Now, individual financial information about people's giving is strictly confidential. You need to know that, and I think you do. It is known only to the very few with financial responsibility here. I and my fellow elders have no idea what anybody, including our fellow elders, or any of you are giving. What we are aware of, and rightly so, is the big picture. And the big picture is that while many people in Chalmers are giving to the church generously and sacrificially, which is what the Bible asks of us, many of us are not. And that should concern us as a church. It should concern us as a corporate matter of integrity before God. So I have two worries. Number one, that we've got the timing wrong. Number two, and it's a much bigger worry, that there is a serious discipleship issue that needs sorting. Most people have picked up a copy of the book Money Counts. Um, One of you did point out to me, it's great, but it's not the Bible. It isn't the Bible, but it's full of Bible, and it's a really helpful book. Many, many of you have commented just how helpful you have found that uh, book. Uh, please do read it. I hardly ever read any of the books that I get, but I have read that one, you'll be glad to know. And uh, please do read it. It's short and an easy uh, read. Why a book in the series? Why a book in the series? Because we want to give you what we are using as a, a preaching team and those writing the Bible studies what we consider to be the best book out there. So we want you to have in your hands the book that we have in our studies. We don't have the answers. We, we kind of want to embrace this issue corporately together. It is a good book, but that person was quite right. It's not the Bible, and so it is to the Bible we turn. Three components to the series, three sermons on Sundays, basics today, 
Rog will take us to Luke 16 next week in a much more sort of normal study for us as we work through a passage, investing for eternity. We're going to look at the issue that Jesus raises a number of times, that it makes sense to spend what is temporary wealth now to help people get to eternity because that's what lasts. And then I'll come back in two weeks' time and finish the series looking at the passage Sam read, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Small group discussions, studies. You've got the first one in your hands. That's the study with the outline. The second one, your small group leaders will email to you by the middle or towards the end of this week. Now, number three is really important. As well as the sermons on Sunday and small group studies, please read, reflect, discuss, and pray with your spouse, if you're married, or with your family, or perhaps with someone, or yourself. And I want to think that in all our homes, whether individually or with your spouse or family, that we will talk about this. Here's a cast iron certainty that in every home this afternoon, at some point over lunch, there will be a conversation about the fact that the minister spoke on money. When you have that conversation, one of the other people around the table should remind us all, remember what he said, let's reflect biblically, carefully, prayerfully, about the subject. And uh, finally, please speak to me, Rog, or your small group leader with questions and uh, comments. That is in part because of the subject matter, but also I think it's very helpful to us as we uh, step carefully through the series on Sundays that you know that we are responding to the questions and issues that you are hearing and being raised. Now, that was my waggle on the tea, which I hope you think was necessary. Let's crack on with the subject for today, Bible basics on money and giving, and a short prayer as we do so. Father God, we pray that we would be uh, very encouraged by studying this subject. We pray that all the cobwebs would be blown away, and we would say it's been good to speak to a subject that Jesus himself spoke to more than any other. Help us to listen. Help us to cut out the fog that we hear from the front and get the stuff that we need to hear from the Bible. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, I had seven Bible basics on money. I now have five because I've kind of squoze them together. Number one. In a fallen world, money is God, promising contentment, that's a lie. Now that sounds like a kind of, kind of crass thing to say, but it, it is true. Let me just pick that out for you. In a fallen world, money is God. It's not hard to convince us that is true. I think we could argue whether money is a big God or the big God. But certainly in our culture, which is a fallen culture that has rejected God, money is God. Money dominates so much of life. And uh, if you were to write down all the different ways that money dominates our lives, 
you would have a very, very long list. It runs right through our culture and our DNA and all that it means to be the kind of person that lives in a city like this. But it's not that money in and of itself is wrong. You know, money at a basic level, and here I draw my previous life teaching economics, this is the only thing I can remember. It's a simple, helpful way of exchanging stuff like bread. You know, it's just a way of exchanging goods or buying houses. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And the Bible has a lot to say about the neutrality of money. It's just a good, sensible thing. It's not that money is wrong. It's our hearts that are wrong. Money doesn't make us greedy. That's the kind of thing we say, but that's not true. It's not true. You know, I don't look at a pile of money and, and that physical stuff doesn't make me greedy. It's the love of money that makes me greedy. And the love of money has nothing to do with money. It's to do with my heart. That wasn't my heart. That's my heart. <laughs> That's the will. That's the heart. It's the love of money that makes us greedy. That's internal, you see, isn't it? It's not outside. It's not a, a fancy car on the door. And just to say that uh, when I walked into church this morning, there was an enormous brand new car, one of these cars that cost like loads and loads and loads. And I thought, please, God, please, not one of them. It's none of you, though. This lady got out and she thought, why is he staring at me? See, it's not that that's wrong. It's what's in here. And my response to it is wrong. The problem with humanity is on the inside, not the outside, which is why the gospel, thank God, changes us inside out, not outside in. See, the gospel, when it hits you, doesn't kind of come at your life and, and you, you, know, you, you know these inventories you do for insurance, that kind of thing, yeah? The gospel doesn't say, well, sit down with your inventory and let's work out what's good stewardship or bad stewardship or what's good giving or bad giving. It doesn't care about that. The gospel works in here and all that stuff in the end takes care of itself. Now, in a fallen world, money is God. Here are some Bible verses, uh, just a few. You'll see them on the sheet. You can follow up with them. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And in the context of that in Matthew is either God is your God or money is your God. You're, you worship the living God or you worship something else, whether that idol that you worship is mental or metal or currency. You love one or the other, not both. 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. There's a misquoted verse. The love of money is not the root of all evil, just all kinds of evil. And Paul's point is that the association of the love of money with evil, the devil, Satan, the prince of this world, a world in rebellion against God. So the love of money is associated with the prince of this world, the fallenness of this world, Satan. And then Romans, 8, Romans 1, 18 to 22, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then that verse that what is, can be known about God is plain in creation, so on and so forth. And then the verdict on humanity. So they are without excuse, 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's the key text. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images or idols. So when we turn from the living God, we turn to a different God, to idols. We turn from God to idols. We turn from worshipping God to worshipping something else. We turn from serving the living God to serving ourselves. And chief among the many gods that replace the living God is money. In a fallen world, money is God. And the Bible texts make that point. You'll often hear me say that our confidence in the Bible, our trust in the Bible as the words of the living God, is proved time and again because the Bible describes life and culture as it is. And of course, in our lives and in our culture, money is God, it really is. So here are some of the absurdities that we have bought into in our culture that we think are normal. This makes no sense. See if you agree with me. This makes no sense. The more responsibility you have at work, the more money you get. That doesn't make any sense. Unless money is a god. Or the only way people be, can be persuaded to take on more responsibility is to give them more money. That doesn't make any sense. Unless money is God. And when they do well, a sense of personal satisfaction or a letter from the boss saying thank you is not deemed to be enough. There needs to be money. And money promises much. And no surprise, what money God promises is exactly what the living God promises. What does money promise? What God promises? Why does it promise the same thing? Because it replaces God. It promises happiness. It promises security. It promises identity, status, worth, purpose. And these promises, and we're not going to stand here 60 feet above contradiction, are extraordinarily persuasive. Because they come to us through a whole assortment of images and messages thousands of times a day. But in the end, you and I are not gullible. We are not persuaded as fallen, rebellious people who have rejected God by the brilliance of marketing, we are persuaded by the state of our hearts. That's where the root problem lies. We want what's on offer, and we're hardwired as fallen humanity never to be able to resist a bargain. So happiness, security, identity, take all of these together. Money promises contentment in life. That is what money and other gods like money promise. Now, the promise rests on one fundamental premise, that this life, this world, is all there is. That's the fundamental premise it rests on. You're born, you live, and you die. That's it, that's the end. And therefore, the God you worship has to be a finite God. The God you worship has to be a time-bound God, an earthly God, a metal God, a mental God, not a living God that transcends all of time and history. But it's all a lie. 
For two reasons. Because it doesn't deliver on what it promises. Now, now I could take you to squillions of pop songs, but I won't do that because I don't know any. But I do remember people like Andy Robertson endlessly quoting them about money never ever brings happiness. There's loads of them in our contemporary culture. And if the Bible's a barometer of culture, so is culture a barometer of culture. Why do all these people write songs about how money doesn't deliver happiness? Let me raise the bar and give you a Bible verse. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Life is meaningless. And it never delivers in the end. Why? Because death is not the end. That's the fundamental issue. Because there is an eternity in the life to come, heaven or hell. And in every possible way, money will mean nothing when you leave this world, for you will leave it all behind. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Now, I, I, I don't think any of us could argue that the Bible verses making this point that money in the end doesn't deliver is a kind of biased view. Partly because I think it's the subtext of our fallen culture and our world that money doesn't deliver in the end. That it doesn't make us happy securely or give us identity. Everybody knows that. Hands up who thinks other. It is the subject of popular culture. It is the subtext of popular culture. All the empirical evidence say that money will not deliver. All the empirical evidence says that it's a false God. All the empirical evidence said you cannot trust it. All the empirical evidence said you cannot take it from this world. But the lie that money is God runs so deep and is so fundamental to the core of our beings that we cannot let go of it. And we run headlong down the broad road that leads to destruction. Money is dangerous. It destroys. It disappoints. It is the biggest stumbling block to becoming a Christian. So Jesus said how difficult it will be for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What a brilliant illustration that is. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said, well, who can be saved? To which he said, what is impossible for humans, because the money God is so hardwired into our natures, is possible with God. Now, in a fallen world, money is God promising contentment. That is a lie. That is the first basic principle. Here is the second, and we're on the uphill now. Christian conversion means loving the right God. Now, just in case you've fallen asleep, page 986, turn that up in your Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. Paul is talking about what happened when the church in Thessalonica, page 986, 
began with a number of people being converted. This is what happened when the church began. And I look out and see many, many converted people. This is what happened to you. The second half of verse 19. You turned to God from idols when you were converted to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now you will remember, I just said a few moments ago, that when we turn from the living God in our rebellion as humanity, which is our hardwired default born nature, we turn to a different God, to idols. We turn from worshipping the living God to worshipping something dead. We turn from serving the living God to serving ourselves. And when you become a Christian, you are converted. It's a U-turn. It's a radical turnaround, which is why Jesus said, repent and believe. Turn and believe. Christian conversion is a fundamental change of allegiance. It means leaving or turning from idols to serve the living and the true God. It means putting your security, finding your identity in Jesus who died for your sins and who rose to give you life and who lives within you by his Spirit. Now here's the deal. It's not your allegiance was there and you make a decision on Sunday the 26th, not 25th, of August to throw your lot in with Jesus that your allegiance is there. Conversion is what God does in us. So it changes your very heart. It changes your very core being. And your allegiance shifts. You are turned by God's grace from worshipping idols to worshipping the living God. It's not that you need to get your head around it. God gets your head around it. It's not that you need to get your heart around it. God gets your heart around it. The bridge is won in your life by Jesus. It's a lot of clearing up work to do, but the bridge of the ship is won. There are many rivets unclaimed. They will be, but the bridge is in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And a whole perspective shifts in one fundamental way. Suddenly, you see this life as a stepping stone to all eternity. This life is like a waiting room where we wait for the Son to return from heaven, the return of Jesus and the new creation. And so with conversion, there comes liberation. We are set free from our allegiance to the gods, the idols of this world. Supernaturally, we've been set free. Our pursuit of happiness, security, and identity is no longer through the gods of this world. But I've got to lay it all out for you. With conversion, there comes liberation. But with conversion, there also comes cost. You see, if we live in this world for the world to come, we would experience cost in this life because the whole culture of this world is living for this life. So we will be so different. Living as a Christian in this world is like standing in a rip current. It's hard. 
Christian conversion is a fundamental change in allegiance. Second passage, and there are only two for you to turn up today, page 947. This is a wonderful passage, Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. Page 947 in the Church Bibles. So let me just keep uh, 1 Thessalonians in your mind. You, when you were converted, I mean you and me, you, when you were converted, turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait from his Son from heaven. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, in light of God's extravagant mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Wonderful verses. Christian conversion means loving the right God. The God who in his great mercy has saved us through Jesus, an act of extravagant, loving, undeserved grace, saved us for what? A life of worship. Imagine if God just saved us for Sundays. God saved us for every moment of every day of our lives on this earth with Jesus. And God saved us for eternity. All of life is worship. All that we are, all that we have, our whole self, our whole being is given to God as worship. All of us devoted to Him. All to Jesus surrenders. What does a life of worship look like? Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Notice, not by emotional manipulation. Now, I could stick a slide up on the screen and emotionally manipulate it. It's very easy, isn't it? To make people cry. Or give. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern. Christian conversion means loving the right God and it changes our minds, how we think about money. Just a word on this in lots of ways. Here are the biggies, and we'll touch on these in the weeks to come. A different perspective. You live for eternity. You see money for what it is. It will not give us happiness, security, or identity. It will not deliver on its promises. It won't give us contentment in our souls. It's the stuff of this world. We'll not take it with us to the new creation. So we see money for what it is. We see money for whose it is. It is God's. All that we have is from Him. He may take it all away. We see money for what it is, whose it is, what it's for, for worshiping God. You see, when we are converted, our whole life is lived in worship of God. Everything is for Him, gladly, lovingly, willingly, obediently, joyfully. Conversion changes how we think about money and it changes what we do with it. Now, here's what the Bible says you should do with your money. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Is it bad stewardship to have a new car? I don't think the Bible cares. Enjoy it. Is it bad stewardship to have a season ticket for hearts? Yes. 
No. Is it bad stewardship to have a nice bike or buy nice clothes or to go on a nice holiday? If you're going down that route, God's word says, stop. I'm no killjoy. God is no killjoy. Enjoy it. Go on a cruise. Enjoy it. Get a new kitchen. Enjoy it. Buy that house. Enjoy it. It's not a bad use of money to buy a coffee in Costa. Now, the reason I'm using these examples is because Christian subculture says, that's a bad use of money. We don't buy new cars because that's a bad use of money. It's all kind of wired into our backgrounds, isn't it? We don't send cards at Christmas. I mean, that might be a good thing. But don't say we don't send cards at Christmas because people who do, it's a bad use of money. It's just not where we should go. It's too crass. So enjoy it. There you go. The other thing we do with our money is give it all to God. Enjoy it, give it all to him. All of it for him to use for his glory, to extend his kingdom, to further the gospel in the world, to invest in what will last into eternity, people uh, save. We use what we have for God. Every time I marry a couple, I say to them, marriage is for the service of God. Give your marriage to God in his service for his glory and let him do with your life as he will and enjoy every minute of it. And that's the same thing with money. Spend it, enjoy it, and give it all away to him. Now, you might think, well, that is, uh, how do we do the both? If you have wealth, use it for God. If you have very little, use what you can for God. If you have houses, use them for God. Use your new kitchen for God. Plant some churches. How can you enjoy it and give it away? That's called wisdom. It's called discernment. It's called gospel living. It's called using your head. If you're waiting for percentages, how much should I give so you can tick the box? The only percentage you'll get from the Bible is 100%. 100%. 100%. That's the mindset. Because it's a change of heart. Conversion brings contentment, that's true. And here's the warning. I don't need to heed you with this warning. If I was to say that the, the Bible... Uh, the gospel changes your heart in relation to uh, morality. And, and then I was to say to you, well, I suspect that most of us this week will have lived a sinless life, a sin-free week. I don't think so. And in this area, it's just a battle and a struggle, like everything else. Yes, our fundamental allegiance has changed. We walk in the Spirit, but we are still bombarded with a squillion messages to say otherwise. And wretched man that I am, my heart still wants to uh, feast on them. There are serious warnings in Scripture, 1 Timothy 6, 9, 10. Money is a risk. You fall into temptation. Many have wandered from the truth. Money is deceptive. It deceives. Remember, we live in a world where money is God. Now, that's us done. Here are the pastoral and practical implications, comments. I don't have anything to say on these yet. Well, I do, but I'm not going to. They're really there for you to take into your discussions and into your prayer times and into your reflections as we approach the subject together. Number one, don't go silent on me. 
There's a, a tiny little fear I have that the small group discussions will be times of silence. Don't go silent. And secondly, do something about it. If you haven't ever started to sort out this stuff in your Christian life, do it. Don't let the devil in. Don't eat me for lunch. Don't do that. Don't say he didn't say that, he didn't do that, you missed that emphasis. I know all of that. Don't let the devil in. Don't be self-righteous. Don't think you've got it sussed. You might have. Don't think because you've only able to give a tiny amount, you've not got it sussed. You might well have. Don't get hung up on percentages apart from 100. And don't let your head rule your heart or your heart rule your head. Don't let your head, sensible planning for the future, working for a living, not sponging off other people, don't let that lead you to put all your security in that. And don't let your heart rule your head. Jesus may say to you, I want you to give up everything materially for me. And if he does, you do it. But don't be daft. Don't be daft. Think wisely. Most importantly, don't feel guilty or anxious. Guilt is a huge problem for Christians. Don't feel guilty. I think the next service, this is a lot easier because I suspect a lot of the young A's and when the students come, they won't have set up standing orders and all that kind of stuff. Life is before them. For us old A's, you know, we're kind of up to our neck in life. It's quite hard to change patterns of a lifetime. Don't feel guilty. Don't be worried. And ask God to give you in this area real joy in giving everything you have to him for his glory. So, a tiny insight, I hope, from God that it's already been good to talk about money. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for helping us to wrestle with this subject a little longer in time than usual, but important to get off to a good start on this. Help us, Lord, to separate the link from uh, the kind of church plant stuff. You know, there's good reason for that, yes, but it's a much bigger and deeper issue than that. Help us to think wisely, to be balanced, to let head rule heart, but not too much, and heart rule head, but not too much. Help us especially not to feel guilty or anxious, and give us joy, give us vision, for Jesus' sake.